0: Hello and welcome to the University Guide podcast with me, David Hawkins. Now many people here in the UK have become very familiar with the new star GCSEs that were launched a few years ago and which have moved from a letter grading scale to a number grading scale with nine being the highest grade now awarded. However, for international universities you might not be aware of some of the nuances of how this process has happened and how best to assess those students who are presenting to you with new-style GCSEs. Now, in order to try and give some light into the situation, I wanted to speak with someone who has detailed insights, not only into one particular subject, but also into how the entire process of GCSEs fits within a British school system. So here's my interview, and I hope it's very useful. Okay, so we're gonna delve now into this issue of the new GCSEs. Uh, My guest on the line is uh, an expert in these areas. Uh, Andy, thank you so much. My pleasure, nice to see you. Great, so Andy, do you mind sort of introducing yourself more formally and also um, talk about your role and and how you are involved in these new GCSEs?
1: Absolutely, so uh, my name's Dr. Andy Kemp. I'm head of Wells Cathedral Senior School, so I look after the senior section of school, so that's for students 11 to 18. Um, I came up through the academic side of of the industry, so I I was previously a director of studies. Uh, So the academic side is kind of very much my bread and butter. Uh, And we have about 100 students a year going through GCSEs at the school. Um, Wells is an unusual school in that we have a proportion of students who take music very seriously, and we offer a kind of uh, pre-conservatoire level music course, but about, occupies about a third of our students. But obviously, we have a much broader range of students than that, and so many go on and do GCSEs and A-levels and go on to academic courses in the UK and abroad.
0: Great. Thank you for that. And so the audience of of this podcast typically is people from outside the UK, um, particularly a lot of admissions officers who might be just now starting to come across the new GCSEs. um, And I will make the point for, for listeners that We're talking here about GCSEs as opposed to iGCSEs, Um, GCSEs offered in the UK by some of the main British exam boards, slightly separately from the international GCSEs offered by Pearson and Cambridge. Um, So Andy, from your point of view, how are these new GCSEs different to the old ones?
1: So I think at the most basic level, they are harder. uh, And I think to say anything else would be disingenuous. Some of that that greater difficulty is to do with more content, Um, There's a lot more material in quite a lot of subject areas than there used to be. And some of it's to do with assessment. So previously, a lot of GCSEs were assessed involving a proportion of practical work or coursework. um, And in some cases, modular exams that they may have sat at the end of year 10 and then a second one at the end of year 11 or even more than that, sometimes with exams in January. And now we've gone to a system which is much more focused on terminal exams. So it's a kind of you get to the end of the course, you get one chance at it. Uh, And it's all down to how you do on the day.
0: Great. Um, In terms of then the sort of the constant elements of there, why was that looked at? What kind of things have been involved in getting to a point where it was felt we needed to have these new GCSEs?
1: So it's an interesting one because you you mentioned the IGCSE aspect beforehand. uh, And to some extent, there was this sense that um, independent schools who were predominantly doing IGCSEs at the time uh, were able to offer a better course or at least a, better, a course that better prepared their students for A-levels than the, the GCSE at the time did. And so what Michael Gove, who was at that time um, Education Minister, did was looked at the IGCSEs and said, well, what could we take from those that we like uh, and bring back to the GCSE? And that was much more focus on kind of terminal exams, much more focus on kind of traditional content. Uh, and so there's a great, greater emphasis on tradition in terms of what exams might have looked like 10 or 15 years ago, uh, and it's kind of a harking back to the glory days, as some people see it, in terms of what exams used to be. Um, and I think to some extent there is some benefit in that. We have won some things. There are some things that are much better about the new GCSEs. There are some things that are worse. Uh, and like anything, there is a trade off. And some we've got some benefits uh, and the, the kind of focus on content is a good thing. Um, and style of the exam papers are often certainly better preparation for A-level than the old ones used to be. But at the same time, we've created a structure that doesn't necessarily lend itself particularly well to the more practical subjects. And I think that's where we've seen the kind of the biggest challenges in terms of this interpretation.
0: And at Wells, are you offering just entirely the new GCSEs or do you still have some departments who might be offering the IGCSE?
1: Very much mix and match. So it's down to finding the right course for the right subject. And so we have some subjects which are doing IGCSEs. some which are doing IGCSEs graded A star to G still, some which are doing IGCSEs graded nine to one, because some of the IGCSEs have adopted the grading pattern, even if they've not necessarily adopted all of the structural changes, and some which are doing GCSEs.
0: Great, so I'm just giving a little overview then of that new grading system, for someone who's listening who's completely new to this and might might understand A star, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but absolutely. now is now looking at these numbers, you know, you know, what's the top, what's the bottom, what's the pass and all those kind of things.
1: Absolutely. So the basic structure is uh, a nine-to-one grading structure. So nine being the best grade and one being the worst grade. Um, And certainly the opinion we were given when it was designed that way was to have the numerical top grade as the highest number because that allowed them at some later date to decide they might like to introduce (laughs) a grade 10. So we're all waiting for the day that the grade 10 adds to that structure.
0: We're turning Um, up to eleven.
1: Absolutely. We'll be there in a few years time, I'm sure. Um, it's worth noting, particularly for um, people who are used to other educational systems or at least some of the historic ones. This is the opposite way around to what standard levels in Scotland were, where the grade one was the best grade. Um, so it's just really important to be careful in terms of your interpretation when you're reading it. And similarly, it, but it's more like the IB structure in the sense that high grades are good and high numbers are high. And so that, that kind of works. So how does it compare to the A star to G? The honest answer is not well. Um, so there are some overlaps. So broadly, you've got grades one, two and three. And grades one, two and three are what were traditionally referred to as an O-level fail. Uh, so that's a grade D, an E, an F or a G, um, and on the old GCSEs. So then you had what was called an O-level equivalent pass under the old GCSE structure. Uh, and that was what our grade C was. And essentially grade C meant you had reached a minimum standard. Um, Now, confusingly, the minimum standard under the nine to one scale is somewhere between a four and a five. So what they're currently describing is a standard pass as a grade four and a good pass as a grade five. And so there is some ambiguity, particularly at university level, about whether or not a a four is a pass or a five is a pass. And certainly in the UK, the feedback I'm getting from some universities is that most universities are accepting a four as a pass. But some of the more elite institutions are deciding to interpret a pass as a five as a mechanism for using in their filters. So they're able to eliminate just a few more students that might otherwise have made the cut uh, and therefore filter down the number of applicants they have in a slightly more efficient way. So broadly, a four is the equivalent of a C, but a five is kind of a good C. Um, And then at the other end, you've got seven. A seven is essentially an A. And then it gets a bit messy. So an A star is somewhere between an eight and a nine. It's definitely not a nine. Nines are much harder to achieve than an A star were. And then you've got your B, which is somewhere between a five and a six. Uh, so when you're trying to peg it, I think the easiest way to look at it is to say a four is a C, um, a five and a half ish is a B, a seven is an A and an eight and a half is an A star. And so depending on where you are, a nine is better than A star, an eight is slightly worse. Um, although, interestingly, when you look at some of the statistics presented in the UK, um, certainly the, at a national level, an eight was interpreted as the equivalent of an A star in terms of a lot of league table calculations yeah. last year. So it, it depends on how you want to, to do it. But broadly, if you were to look at kind of stratifying the, the population into the same kind of chunks, it would be slightly better than an eight for an A star. But not a lot better, Got and it. certainly a nine is not a start.
0: Okay, and, and just for the for the sake of clarity again, you know, the the level at which a student would have to reach to to hit a nine, you know, at the very high end, is is that just a finite standard? So in one year you might get four percent of candidates get might get a nine, and another year two percent of candidates might get a nine, or or is there some cohort sampling here to make sure that a nine is the top percentile or whatever it might be of candidates?
1: So the, the British education system is, is complicated. So the answer is it's both. Uh, there is, it's not a norm reference system in the sense that 10 percent get a nine, 10 percent get an eight, etc., all the way down. Um, that's not how it's structured, as it is in some countries. However, there is a degree of norm referencing from year to year. So it's, it's not a purely standardised. This is the level required to hit a nine, um, although that is the majority of it there is a bit of um, adjustment from year to year on standards so that a broadly similar proportion from year to year get the same grade, but it's not norm reference either because we like to make this complicated.
0: There we go. Now I'm really understanding it was a good choice to speak to a head teacher who also used to be a maths teacher to explain this to everybody.
1: Absolutely.
0: OK, so for international universities who might be, be you know, seeing these applications, potentially, as you said, a mixed economy of letters and numbers and things, you are, with you as a, as a school, and as you mentioned with the music students that you have, you are seeing a lot of students go to conservatories around the world. Absolutely. How would you like universities to interpret the new grading system?
1: I think to some extent that you need to be quite flexible in your interpretation of it and, and not too rigid. So what you're looking for in most cases is a breadth of standard. So if a student is achieving kind of a collection of sixes and sevens, then they are an academically talented person. They might not be exceptional. Um, The exceptional candidates are going to be the nine and eights kind of across the board with some A stars, maybe depending on the the mix of what subjects they're doing. Um, But you need to kind of interpret with a degree of flexibility. One of the things that you'll start to see in terms of applications that are different is possibly students taking fewer exams than they used to. So whereas the norm in the UK for a long time was 10 or 11 GCSEs, That's very much shifting down to closer towards a nine to 10, because people are just looking at these new these new courses and saying, actually, how deliverable are they on the same amount of time as we used to deliver the old course? And so a number of schools are looking at just slightly compressing that down. And the downside to that is inevitably a loss of breadth. So where we used to have a a course that was very much designed around breadth at GCSE, different to our A-level structure, which is very much about specialization, Um, the GCSE structure is starting to lose a little bit of that breadth around the edge. Um, And so you may find you've got more candidates applying who don't have quite the same breadth of experience at GCSE as you may have had a few years ago. And so they're relying upon that kind of broad experience to mean that they're still capable of coping with the the courses that they're engaging with, but possibly not in quite the same way.
0: Great. So I guess the message is that people need to understand this is a new system and almost a new paradigm and not try to compare it to candidates from previous cycles.
1: Absolutely. the Life is quite different and it's important that it's seen in that light.
0: Great. And so a question in terms of then about the particular subjects, and you and I, were, when we were colleagues working in the same school, yeah. we constantly hit the issue of, you know, my line of work being the, the university advising and your line of work being, being maths, that actually yeah. students who'd achieved very well at Maths GCSE could suddenly come a cropper with the leap to, to A-level. And I know with the new maths that actually a more rigorous maths GCC is, is overcoming some of that those problems. Are there any su- subjects in particular where it would be good for an admissions officer at university to know that the new GCC is significantly different to the old one?
1: So I think that probably the biggest difference is in the arts. So if you take uh, subjects like art and drama and music and th- that kind of gamut of subjects, Uh, there's a much greater emphasis on the written components in those courses than there used to be, uh, and therefore less practical assessment than there used to be. Um, Now, in some ways, that's good preparation for A-level, because the A-levels in those subjects have always involved a greater degree of academic rigor in terms of the technical knowledge. Um, But it does mean that those students who are more practically inclined, and, and I have a number of those students at my school who are very talented musical practitioners, but sometimes find the technical aspects of music quite challenging. These courses don't recognize their ability in the same way that they used to. And so a very talented musician who can play at a very high level, um, but finds the theory hard is likely to get a lower grade now in this structure than they used to get two or three years ago. So it might be that a very talented um, player, might now get a B or a C grade at GCSE, potentially. So in our new structure, those kind of sevens, sixes and fives, um, whereas previously they might have got a nine or an eight because their performing carried a greater weight in that old structure. And the same will be true in drama, particularly, where the ability to perform as, an, as a wonderful kind of actor isn't recognised to the same extent in the grade that they'll achieve. They're expected to perform at a higher level technically than they were before. And so those aspects have certainly changed a bit. I think the other one where you'll see quite a lot of change is uh, within the sciences. So the sciences, because of the significantly larger amount of content in the new science courses, there are a number of schools, ourselves included, who are putting more and more students through what's called the double award course rather than through the separate sciences. So that means that rather than getting a GCSE in physics and a GCSE in chemistry and a GCSE in biology, they now come out with a GCSE in science. But they technically come out with two GCSEs in science both graded separately, but it doesn't tell you where the breakdown between the chemistry, the physics and the biology bits are. Um, And within the double award particularly, one of the things that we've seen is that there's a lot more breadth of science, but a lot less depth. And so unless a student has done separate sciences, they're likely to find the step from GCSE to A-level significantly harder than they did a few years ago, because there's just that lack of depth in the GCSE subjects. Uh, whilst there's a greater interest in the breadth of experience of science. So those are the two areas, I think, where you'll see the biggest difference. Um, across the board, there is more content. Um, the English literature course is much harder than it used to be. Uh, they now have to study a pre 20th century um, nonfiction text. So it's not only that they have to study more texts, but some of these texts are quite technical and quite unusual. Um, and so there's a degree of kind of skill now expected for a lot of these GCSEs that just means that they're just much harder. Um, and I think what we're starting to see, although it's quite early, is that that means that in some cases the grade boundaries are lower than they used to be. So while students are necess- might be getting the similar kind of grade pattern in some places, the actual skill level might not be quite the same in terms of the percentage on the exams. So there's, there's a of nuance here um, that means it's very hard for somebody even living inside the system to understand exactly what's going on, let alone somebody who's looking at it from the outside and is not used to what we're all up to.
0: Quite. Well, I mean, I think that grey boundaries issue that you've touched on there is one that we should probably explain a little bit again for someone who's coming in new to this. Um, And and I I think I I still pretend I live inside the system, but Andy knows it's been a while (laughs) since I actually taught taught a subject um, however well I I ever did. but for those who might be new to that idea, Andy, would you mind just explaining actually what you mean when you talk about a grade boundary and how maybe the raw marks a student is gaining, as you're saying in, in their music exams or science exams, is translating to, to that grade?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this comes back to that, that suggestion of, uh, we were talking about earlier to do with criterion referencing versus norm referencing. So whether or not there's a standard that you must meet to reach a grade. Or whether or not it's based upon the percentage of the cohort getting a particular grade. And as I said, it's it's not either, it's kind of a bit of both in a mishmash. And that means that every year, what they do is they set the exam paper and they set what they think are provisional uh, grade boundaries. So that means that if you achieve, say, 30% in this exam, you might get a grade four. If you achieve 40%, you might get a grade five. And they'll have some rough idea of the level of difficulty of the paper. Uh, and in an ideal world, every year, every paper would be exactly the same level of difficulty, and so the grade boundaries would stay roughly the same. In reality, some papers turn out to be harder than the examiner thought they were going to be, some turn out to be easier than the examiner thought they were going to be, and so what happens is once they've marked a sample, they start to adjust those grade boundaries to make sure that the percentage of people getting those grades is roughly similar to the differences from last year. They add in all sorts of other factors to that. So they look back at things like exams they sat at the end of Key Stage 2 nationally. So is this cohort generally brighter than the cohort last year? In which case we'd expect slightly more nines. Are they just slightly weaker nationally? In which case we'd expect slightly fewer nines. And so there's all sorts of calculations that go on in the background to fudge those grade boundaries around essentially. Um, And that means in any particular year um, you might get um, a grade 4 for 30% one year and the following year it might be 20% and the following year it might be 40% uh, And so what you've got to deal with is this slight difference that sometimes kind of the percentage they achieve on the paper doesn't necessarily reflect terribly well on the actual grade they get um, and that means that we've got these shuffling between kind of raw marks that they achieve on the paper and a grade can have this kind of slightly nuancy floating difference <laughs> each year um, between exactly what one means that because it, and it comes down to that whole catalogue of factors between their ability as a national cohort the difficulty, all of those things have to be merged back together again to get some idea of the exact grade boundary In it's most extreme if you go back um, it was about 10 years ago The C grade boundary on the GCSE higher level maths paper um, was notorious because it shuffled around a bit and one year it got as low as 18%. So a grade C on a paper meant that you'd got four fifths of the paper wrong. Uh, But as far as the exam was concerned, you'd met the national standard uh, on that particular paper. And I guess related to that, um, an important issue for people to be aware of is this concept of tiered papers. Now, there are fewer tiered papers than there used to be, but they do still exist. in And maths would be a good example of where they do. And so as a student taking an exam, I can either sit a higher tier paper, and as a higher tier paper, that's designed for candidates aiming to achieve essentially a grade four and above. Or I can sit a foundation tier paper, which is for candidates attempting to achieve a grade somewhere between one and four, one and five, something like that. There's a little bit of overlap in that kind of 4th grade, which is achievable on both. Um, So if I take a foundation paper, the grade 4 boundary might be something like 80%. And if I take a higher paper, the grade 4 boundary is likely to be about 24%. And so they're radically different experiences. um, And that means that the teaching experience that that young person might have had may be radically different as well. Because if I'm teaching a foundation class, I'm probably only going to cover about half the material but I'm going to try and cover it in a way that means that they get really secure with it. Whereas i am teaching a higher level class, I'm going to cover a lot more material, but I'm probably not going to expect them to be quite so secure in their understanding of all of that knowledge because the grade boundaries are much lower on that paper to achieve the same grade.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, a question actually that I'm glad you covered because it does come up, I get asked um, by a lot of university admissions officers, they did this paper and they couldn't get the high grade, what does that mean? And and I, I guess the mechanics of it is that you... You don't want that student who's you know, on a good day is going to maybe get a two in GC maths to have to sit there for another three hours yep. just turning over pages and pages of maths that they can't do. And equally, your student who's going to walk a nine is going on to be a, 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 have a PhD in maths to spend an yep. hour doing questions that they could have done when they were eight.
1: Absolutely. So it's an attempt. I, in, in one level, it kind of harks back to the, the very old structures in the UK of the difference between GCEs, uh, sorry, CSEs and O-levels where the higher tier was essentially the O-level equivalent and the CSE was essentially um, the the foundation tier. So you've got foundation and uh, CSE, and then you've got this kind of higher tier, which is your equivalent of an O-level equivalent. So we've kind of changed our examination structure over the years, but we never really change it that much. We always kind of keep at kind of vestiges of our previous structures to try and keep them running in a kind of, so that there is at least the ability to look back and say, actually now, um, now an 8 at um, on our new GCSE structure is still somehow the equivalent of an O-Level pass that you might have got 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so there's some commonality whilst actually almost everything has changed somewhere in between.
0: Okay. And the one thing that never changes is that anyone working in British education loves a good acronym.
1: Absolutely. We have a lot of them. I've got half of them me myself.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Andy, I'm really grateful for your time here. I knew you'd be able to give a very cogent overview of this. Um, for anyone who, who wants to follow Andy on Twitter, he's a really interesting thinker about education. That always posts some some really fascinating blogs that make me think about the way schools, schools work. So, so, Andy, where can people find you on Twitter?
1: So, I'm Twitter at Andy Andy Kemp, so A N D Y K E M P.
0: Fantastic. And I'd love to hear from you. Great stuff, Andy. Thanks so much for your time. Um, it's been really great. My pleasure. My well, huge thanks to Andy for his time and his insights. And hopefully that's a really good level of detail there when understanding how the new GCSEs differ from the ones that international admissions officers might be more used to. As ever, thanks so much for listening to the University Guide podcast. Please do subscribe or find me on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook.